As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It is our second episode of the week. Bruce, spring football starting to wind down. We've got a whole bunch of spring games this Saturday. And let's kind of put a bow on our respective travels throughout the month. Um, you had a story go up on Thursday from your visit to Texas. And we mentioned this on the last podcast with Andy Staples about the Texas lockers. But uh, there's more to say. Yeah, so I, I talked to Tom Herman about the lockers you know, we talked about first when I visited with him on Friday, uh, you know, dealing with entitlement. And that was one of the knocks that has been plagued, plaguing the Texas program for much of the past decade, certainly in the last few years. That's one of the issues Charlie Strong was trying to work against and and obviously wasn't able to to get turned around fast enough. But uh, so we talked about that. And what he's doing. But then, you know, we talked more this week uh, after I left just because I had to finish up the interview on the reaction he got and Texas got on social media. And I said, you know, was this exactly what did you make of it? And he was very blunt. He was like, the only reaction I care about is that of our players and our recruits. I don't care about Twitter's reaction. I don't care about social media's reaction. Our players loved it. The recruits loved it and mission accomplished on that. And it was, uh, you know, when I asked some of his players, and these are older players, um, one of them, uh, Puna Ford, who's a defensive lineman there, he's a senior, I had said, uh, you know, because he was like, man, if I'm a recruit, I'm thinking, dang, I, you know, that's, that's catching my eye and everything. I said, but what do you really think it could make the difference in one recruit picking Texas over Oklahoma or Texas over A&M and he said yes I do because everything matters and you know you follow that up with uh, you know because I went right to, to Tom with you know what some of the reaction you got from people to this and maybe he didn't see a lot of it but I definitely did was this is an example of the entitlement issue and it, you know is there a disconnect here between you know, you're you're bringing these kids, luring them with these, you know, extravagant and 
you know, as one other, you know, rival coach put it, this stuff is absurd, you know, stuff. And, you know, do people scratch your heads on why you're going to have a team that would be uh, entitled or or that issue? And he was very blunt. He was like, first of all, I don't care. And second of all, I'd rather have us be soft with really good players than soft with really bad players. And by the way, we're not going to be soft. And he kind of talked about the stuff that, you know, they had done at Houston. And he said that was definitely not a soft team. And he said, you need good players and the finest facilities in the, in the country attract really good players and soft isn't anything about what they get or the gear they get. And he said, if you're soft, it's because your culture is soft. Um, what do you think, what do you make of his comments and, and his position on this? Well, I don't doubt that the players and the recruits love it. Um, you know, you always run the risk the older you get of being in the stay, stay, you know, get off my lawn crowd. I mean, I remember when Oregon first unleashed the, or what we know now as the Oregon uniforms in this would have been like early two thousands. I mean, those were controversial. You know, now it's just like an accepted part of college football that these schools all have cool alternate uniforms. But when Oregon first did it, it was just seen as like blasphemy. Like how could you, you know, college football uniforms had a certain look and these were, I think people referred to them as the Flintstone uniforms back then. And people were very dismissive of it. And Oregon would say, but the recruits love it. And you know what? They do. So I don't doubt that the, the, the players and the recruits love it. The part of your story that struck me a little bit, or his comments, is when he's kind of talking about the detail that went into it. Um, he's like, because he worked on the, you know, he, he apparently also did put a lot into the locker room at Houston. I've learned a lot about lockers. We just redone the locker room in Houston one year ago. Obviously, we didn't have solid surface doors there. We learned a little bit about what A&M had and what Penn State had and what Oregon had. I knew that was the cleanest, sleekest, sturdiest way to go was a solid surface door. Now, all college football coaches sweat the details, but the fact that Tom Herman spends this much mental energy on what kind of doors they're going to have on the lockers, I'm sorry, but I don't know how that's going to help you beat Oklahoma. Well, the reason why they think it might help beat Oklahoma is because if A&M spent eight grand on lockers, we're going to spend, you know, 10, 10.5 grand on it. And they have white doors. We got to have something, as he said, it different and something better. Uh, you know, we talked about this. Uh, we had a mailbag question. I, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. You answered it and you were skeptical that this kind of stuff would be the difference in getting a recruit or not. And... I mean, I think it's a reality of, of life in 2017 that this stuff does matter to well, them. Well, I think there's an expectation that you have good facilities, right? If these kids, if you're an elite recruit and you're going on official visits to Alabama, Texas, you know, Oregon, you name it, there's an expectation they're going to have really cool facilities, right? If you walked into one of these places and it was run down and there was carpet peeling you'd be really turned off and that would be a reason probably to exclude that school. But in terms of why you're going to pick Texas over A&M or Texas over Oklahoma, no, I don't buy that that's the reason. They're all nice facilities. You're picking it because of the coach, because of the way you get along with the players, the system they run, their ability to send you to the NFL, and the facilities is like, well, it's good to know. It's good to know that I'm going to be treated well here um, for sure. But I just really seriously doubt it's like 
if it happens, you know, bring it to me and I'll and I'll fall on the sword. If you if there is a commitment in this coming class where the guy says where they say why'd you pick Texas and he says because of those really cool lockers, then then so be it. But I don't buy it. I think you're giving the uh, the 18 and 17 and 16 year olds a little too much credit. You're thinking like an you're thinking like an adult, and sometimes there are guys who. I think it would pick places over what kind of jersey number they get to wear and what they don't get to wear at another place. Or a girl they met on their official visit. Who, yeah, who may never see them again. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, 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 I know. I, I know that that's possible. But uh, th- we're talking like this being the difference maker. Well, again, I go back to the Puna Ford comment, everything matters. And I think if this is something that gets them thinking, leaning in a direction where all of a sudden now – you know, Tom Herman or somebody on his staff is able to to make a stronger case for them to go to to convince them Then it then it is a difference. I mean, it's maybe not the ultimate deciding thing, but if it's one aspect that that kind of enticed them to get them on board or get them excited about the place. I don't know. I, I just think like especially after doing that recruiting book 10 years ago, my expectation and my perspective on it is. Nothing would surprise me when you're dealing with, you know, 16 and 17 year olds who are who are really in kind of a whirlwind with all these coaches and fans recording them and wooing them. Well, speaking of super duper facilities, um, since the last time we talked on here, I visited Oregon. So this was your first if I'm not mistaken. This is the first time you actually ever met Willie Taggart. Correct? It is. Yeah, it was the first time I met Willie Taggart. Uh, but I was just going to say, if you, if for, I mean, I'm sure people have heard about it or maybe seen the pictures, but I can't emphasize enough. And this is my third or fourth time in this building. But their Death Star football facility is unlike anything else you'll see out there. You're, you can see it. It's so pronounced that, you know, oftentimes when you go visit these schools, right, you have to ask the SID, you know, how do I get to the facility? You don't have to do that at Oregon. Drive to the football stadium and you will see this enormous black like futuristic looking building from miles away. Um, yeah, it was my first time uh, meeting Willie Tiger. We sat down, we had a great conversation. Um, he's pretty blunt about the personnel he inherited, or, or should we say the lack of personnel that he inherited. Not necessarily on the offensive side of the ball, where you've got, first of all, you got Royce Freeman. For, I think people might forget at this point that he's still there. I mean, this is a guy who was a star freshman running back when they went to the national championship game. Mm-hmm. He's still there. Justin Herbert was a very promising, uh, had a, coming off a very promising freshman season at quarterback. But, you know, they were the one of the worst, if not the worst, defenses in the country last year. And uh, his comment to me was, you know, when they got out on the practice field, he's like, I couldn't believe how weak we are. You know, this is a, this is a power five school. And, I mean, basically saying, like, you know, the players he had at USF were stronger, physically stronger than the guys who were lining up out there on defense for Oregon. Um, and they're lacking for talent. Scott Pagano, the Clemson grad transfer is definitely going to help them. But, um, he's pretty blunt about it. Like we need to go recruit. We need to go build this up. And I'm still just puzzled at how this could have happened so quickly because I mean, you look back since we've been covering the sport, you know, Miami peaked around 2001, 2002, and then it started to gradually decline. Um, you you could say that about any number of programs that had long success, but in Oregon's case, two year what two years and three months ago they were playing in the national championship game, and here we are two years and three months later 
talking about a program that is in need of a complete rebuilding job. How does that happen so quickly? Well, a couple of things. I think one factor that maybe we're not giving enough credit to them, you know, playing for the national title is they had an all-time great player who I think, I don't want to say inflated it because they still had good skill talent around them, but Marcus Mariota, you know, if Marcus Mariota's not there and they may be an 8-4 and four team, you know, but I think when you look back, and this is why I was curious to do this, and this isn't the, probably the greatest way to, to gauge talent, um, but if you go back to to the 2014 draft, they have had one, two, three, four, five, six players taken in the top three rounds, which is pretty good. Um, and I think so. They do have some top level talent, but I think, you know, cause you look at it, DeForest Buckner, when he was there, I mean, they were a bad defense when DeForest Buckner was there in 2015. And DeForest Buckner was the best defensive player in the Pac-12. So you take him away, there's a pretty good chance they're going to be worse, right? Um, and I just look at it. You know, they had Eric Armstead before that, who was a, who was a first-round pick. Uh, you know, they, they've had talent in places, but I just think it was – the depth of it was pretty lacking. I don't think people realized at the time <clears> – <throat> Nick Aliotti is not somebody who – ever got the praise and the, and the reputation of like Pat Narduzzi or uh, Dave Aranda. He was never the hot defensive coordinator. He was a, you know, a guy that did this for decades and, and his defenses, even at, you know, even when they were winning a lot of games, were giving up a lot of yards because of that system they ran in, but they were pretty good defenses. And so he retires after the 2013 season, Don Pelham takes over. That was a mistake. Brady Hoke coming in. That was, that didn't help. But, you know, more than scheme and, and whether they're going to run a 4-3 or a 3-4, for whatever reason, they just started missing on defensive recruits. Not not recruits turning them down, just poor evaluation because now you're left with nothing. So they've got to rebuild that up. Um, I don't think it's going to be a quick fix. If you look at the trajectory of what he did at USF, he took over a program that was also coming off, um, I don't, you know, Skip Holtz didn't have a great time. They weren't terrible. They they didn't have great teams, and they went and they took a dip at first, and people started to panic. I mean, half a few games into his third season, people thought he was going to get fired. Not just done anything. almost everybody there thought he was going to get fired. And to me, the the biggest credit uh, to Willie Taggart was he did something that very few coaches are able to do, and that's when everybody else thinks you're about to get fired. He like flipped a switch. They had lost a game, but they were competitive in it. And all of a sudden they went on this, you know, amazing run for basically the next season and a half. It's the point where he left it, uh, where a lot of people think Charlie Strong inherited a team that I don't know if they can make the playoff, but should be a top 15, top 20 team. So I think that's a credit to Willie Taggart. I mean, he's a Jim Harbaugh guy. A lot of times he's, he feels like he's the third Harbaugh brother. He, yeah, Harbaugh was his best man. And I think there is a belief inside him that, hey, this is, you know, I'm going to make this work. And I, I think one thing that's very interesting is, you know, I don't know if you use the word soft when you describe that team, but a lot of people have talked about him being finesse and everything about that program. Three of the guys he hired on that staff, Jim Levitt, who did a fantastic job with, with the Colorado defense, Mario Cristobal, who's his offensive coordinator, and then the other one 
was Joe Salavea, who did a really good job in the Pac-12. He was most recently was Washington State's defensive line coach, and I'm sure he had a big role in Scott Pagano deciding to transfer there as opposed to Oregon or Notre, as opposed to Oklahoma or Notre Dame. Um, those are guys that I think, you know, will be a big impact in terms of the temperament, not just the not just the kind of kids they recruit, but also uh, the expectations there. Well, speaking of the coaching staff, I'm very curious to see how that offense will come together. Um, I mean, Willie Taggart, he, like you said, he is very much of the Harbaugh tree. I mean, he'll flat out tell you that everything he learned about how to run a program came from the Harbaugh's. But the offense he's running is not remotely what Jim Harbaugh is running at Michigan. It is a modern, up-tempo, attack-you-fast offense that he has... At USF, he, he coined it the Gulf Coast offense. And I asked him what he's going to call it now up in the Northwest. And he said, eh, still the Gulf Coast offense. So that is definitely what they're going to run. That is what he expects the staff to run. But he also has the input now of Mario Cristobal, one of his co-OC, coming from Saban and Alabama and the system they run there. Marcus Arroyo, uh, who I remember as the San Jose State quarterback, he spent the past two years at Oklahoma State where they – uh, where Gundy with, you know, uh, Mason Rudolph and James Washington were, were, you know, beating people with the deep ball as well as anybody. So this all comes together. And I think that's important because Oregon fans are used to scoring a lot of points. Um, it, they're going to want to see, they want to win games, obviously. They're going to want to see them score some points. And I think given his track record, I think they'll be able to do that. Yeah. Marcus Arroyo, by the way, guy, his name came up on a bunch of different coach search where, where uh, different schools were interested in him and trying to, you know, hire him away. And uh, so that was another good hire. I'm very curious to see how, he, you know, as his career kind of continues to to go up from there. Um, hey, I mentioned Gundy's name real quick there. I, just a quick thing here. This is this a rattlesnake thing or what no, do you do now? I know. Well, here's what he did. They got their rings. Uh, oh, I did see this, the 11-2. Yeah. and two. And their rings for this past season say 11-2, and two, not 10-3. and three. Because he considers the Central Michigan game a win. How do we feel about this? Uh, let him do what he wants to do. I mean, ultimately, no one, you know, the only people who are going to look at those rings are the people, you know, years from now. I mean, is, is uh, in retrospect, is 10 and th- is, does 10 and 3 look that much worse than 11 and 2 or vice versa? No. And you didn't go 10, 11 and 2. You went 10 and 3. Right. But I'm saying like if this was a case of let's say, you know, there's been teams who like, you know, had a bad call and kept them from being undefeated. That's a different story. Or if you want to say, you know, you're on Urban Meyer's team where it went undefeated. But, you know, because of the sanctions, they were uh, kept out. Different story. But you lost a couple of games anyway. I mean, I was at the game in the rain where, you know, Oklahoma took it to them pretty good. It's like, I don't know. I don't think it's as egregious as. Um, like when Texas A&M, you know, finished in a three-way tie for first in the Big 12 South, but didn't go to the championship game and they still gave them rings or banner. I don't remember a banner maybe that said Big 12 South champs. That, that, that's not this, but, um, you know, that's kind of Gundy, right? Like it just, again, I remember he said it during the season last year when he would, as it was going, you know, oh, we're an eight and two team. No, you're not. (laughs) I'm not going to hold it against him. I just think it's kind of to me. It did seem a little bit, a little bit silly, but to each his own. I want to bring up a uh, interest. The NFL draft is next week, and you know how I feel about the NFL draft process. And this, to me, is uh, a great example of it. 
is now as because you know look ESPN everybody you know the talking heads they they have to talk about this for four months they gotta keep coming up with new storylines and this morning I saw that one of the new storylines on ESPN is is whether Josh Dobbs from Tennessee can sneak into the late first round now Josh Dobbs is a great kid as you know uh, mm-hmm. very smart just like put up conscientious with, does great work off the field put up Josh put Dobbs. up with so much so please crap there. do please do i feel like this is the cartoon where the huge like piano is about to come down on josh dobbs's head and you're gonna drop it josh dobbs is not a not even remotely a first round quarterback and and it surprises me because normally these nfl guys frown on the dual threat quarterbacks who aren't as advanced as a passer as they are a runner and that's basically who he is i mean he he kept them in games with his running ability um but i think you could maybe count on a couple of fingers the numbers of games that tennessee won because he had such a great passing day how surprised would you be if josh dobbs was actually a starting quarterback in the nfl within the next five years starting wouldn't shock me because a lot of guys become starting quarterbacks right i mean there uh nothing will ever surprise me more than trevor simeon becoming an nfl starting quarterback starting it fine, but 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 late first round, if that were to happen, means you think he could be a, uh, an all pro at some point, and that's not going to happen. Why are you so down on him? Because I, I mean, watched look, him watched him play football. His 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 numbers actually are not bad. Almost threw for three thousand yards, twenty seven touchdowns, twelve picks. Also ran for almost for over eight hundred yards and twelve more touchdowns. This was interesting to me. I got to admit, I I was a little surprised by, you know, I wouldn't have thought Josh Dobbs would have gone in the first three rounds, um, because I didn't, you know, the consistency as a passer. And he still might not. By the way, this may just be them manufacturing a storyline. Well, the part where the first time it caught my eye was uh, a few days ago. I saw on Twitter. I think it was from the Feinbaum show. I didn't actually hear it, but I saw that the Feinbaum account tweeted this out. Lewis Riddick, who works for ESPN uh, and is a former player, but also a former front office guy. I have a ton of respect for him, uh, for his insight and everything. I think he's a great follow on Twitter. Uh, and I'll be honest, he knows way more about the NFL than I do. Um, he did say this. I don't see why Josh Dobbs couldn't have the same effect on a football team as Dak Prescott had. Uh, now, obviously, that's a little bit vague in terms of that. I mean, you know, Dak Prescott had a, was a revelation for the Cowboys. He played behind a great offensive line, but was a terrific rookie find for them, you know, not in the first round. Had a ton of success at, at Mississippi State, the best player they probably ever had in that program's history. Um, and I think there, was, there were concerns about Dak Prescott, not only the system he came out of, but also I think there were some concerns about him as a passer. Uh, why Dak, not? Dak Prescott, look, I I would not, you know, say, you know, there's no way I could possibly say or take credit for having seen anything like this coming with Dak Prescott. But he did lead a program that has been, you know, had very little national prominence to the number one ranking in the country at one point. He was that dynamic, a leader and a quarterback. And he did it, by the way, with guys who were not nearly as heavily recruited as the guys Josh Dobbs is playing with. I'm looking at his game log from last year. And by the way, there is one that just, I had to do a double take. Did this really happen? Remember they lost to Vanderbilt in kind of a high scoring game. Did you know he was 31 of 34 for 340 yards that day? 
Yeah, it sounds that's sound pretty yeah. good. But uh, Alabama, you know the, the the NFL defense of the SEC, if you will, sixteen of twenty seven for ninety two yards, no touchdowns and a pick. Um, let's see, if you had to pick out what his best game was, I guess you'd probably say that Florida game where they came back from a big deficit. Yeah, sixteen of thirty two for three nineteen, four touchdowns and two picks, and ran seventeen times for eighty yards. I think that will always be the high point. Of his time. Can I? Can I? I'm going to read you this, and it's it's good in retrospect. And this is from NFL.com. It's their scouting report. On they have uh, you know experts for for this thing. The weaknesses on Dak Prescott: increase in short pass attempts from 86 to 208 attempts this year. That was the year you're talking about, 2015. No, 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 reason- no, 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 no. The 2014. He is when he led them to the number one ranking. He came back. No, I know, but okay. So, but yes. I think this is saying in 2015, he it, they went, they had twice as many short pass attempts as they did the year before, and accuracy, and that was why they thought his com- completion numbers went up. Accuracy on intermediate and deep throws drops sharply. Pocket poise has been compromised. Hyper aware of pressure around him and lacks awareness to slide and find temporary shelter to make throw. Concern over pressure too often trumps ability to get through progressions. Must speed up pace of reads and footwork is a mess. One thing I will say, uh, then there's some other, uh, some other you know issues. Needs to improve anticipation. He went to a great place because the Dallas Cowboys have as good an offensive line as anybody in the NFL. But obviously he delivered under those circumstances. It is, as I've said many times, it is a big, big crapshoot. Here's what I think happens. They have these teams invest so much money in the scouting process. You know, by the time you get to the draft, they've seen these guys. I mean, in many cases, they've gone to the schools and seen them in practice. They've seen them in games. They've seen them at the combine, pro day, the senior bowl. They've watched a gazillion hours of tape. And I think if you give them that long to do that, they can talk themselves in and out of just about anything. It would be an interesting psychological study to be honest in how like like let's say on january 10th you're totally convinced you've watched deshaun watson for for three years and you're totally convinced he's the best quarterback in the draft but you still have to do something with your time for the next three months so you start watching the tape again and again and now you're starting to see well wait a minute now i'm not as sure about his accuracy on the deep you know what i mean like i'll tell you what if you gave him another four months (laughs) They might start finding walk-ons on these teams and saying, ah, this guy's going to be the next Dak Prescott. Um, yeah, I, I don't doubt what you're saying. I think there's also its beauties in the eye of the beholder. You could probably find some scout to rave about a guy and some. And I go back to this. Uh, the, my last night at the Combine this year, uh, I had a beer at one point with an NFL quarterback coach who did not think Pat Mahomes uh, would be an NFL quarterback, could be an NFL quarterback. And just thought he was so raw and, you know, didn't do anything from the pocket. Everything was unconventional and said, you can't play in the NFL like that. And Pat Mahomes, if you, you know, pay you know, if you're looking on social media and I'm talking about just a lot of places, it sounds like Pat Mahomes may end up as a first round pick. Well, so have, by any chance, have you followed up with him about that? I have not. I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah, because uh, I would be curious to know what he thinks now, because. Look, and this is not unique to the draft by any in any industry. In our industry, we're all susceptible to groupthink. We're all susceptible well, to 
we, we don't want to be wrong, right? So if everybody else is starting to think something and you're not, then you start to question yourself. I would be I would be curious if he's changed his opinion on that in the wake of whether or not, too. yeah, on the wake of like all of his colleagues pushing this. Well, I don't know if all of his colleagues are pushing it. It could yeah. be a few. I mean, one thing I did hear when I was there was he is like a bigger Johnny Manziel without the baggage. Well, you know, if you have Johnny Manziel without the baggage and bigger, I think that would tempt a lot of people, you know, in terms of that. Uh, he certainly didn't have the talent around him that Manziel had on the offensive line or he didn't have a Mike Evans. Um, you know, and, you know, not having the baggage is a huge piece of, of Johnny Manziel's, you know, NFL demise, at least at this point. So, um, I'm just know. glad they don't draft sports writers. Can you imagine if like everybody was, was, was analyzed in this way? Uh. Like Schroeder. some Schroeder can't file on <laughs> can't file on time. So I'm saying like the next like some 22 year old is graduating from uh, Missouri Journalism School and they're scouting him and they're like ah oh, he's like uh, you know Dennis Dodd but with, without the great lead you know what I mean like <laughs> everybody would be compared to somebody else. This has the potential to go off the rails in a hurry if you uh, if we start start calling out some more some of our buddies. Um, he's like Bruce Feldman, except he doesn't have encyclopedic re- recall of the heights and weights. That that seems to really stuck with you for some reason, huh? Well, I, it just it really impresses me because I can't remember any of them. Uh, getting back to your point about give them enough time and they'll you know find everything. Um, I have a prediction that at some point, if if in fact Sam Darnold has a really good sophomore year and then were to leave, I think you would hear a lot about people talking about his his you know wind up and his mechanics and people starting to like nitpick on that that we probably hadn't heard much of like i i the the idea that somebody is too good to be true you know won't happen it certainly won't happen with a quarterback it certainly will not happen if that player is too good to be true athletically i mean you look they're they're picking miles garrett apart because even though he had double teams and you know wasn't healthy at times in the sec and still played they didn't love his SEC production. Who was the last quarterback that everybody was 100% on board like, this guy's going to be a star? My thing on the closest thing to can't miss that has happened in the last decade was Andrew Luck. That's what I remember. People didn't think he had a cannon for an arm. Well, but but- it, also became, it also became a debate where, where some people thought you should take RG3 uh, number one. Yeah, I, you remember, though, RG3 had a terrific rookie year. I think it depends on what you run and what you do. Um, you know, system wise, how a guy. I fits. mean, I voted for him over Andrew Luck for the Heisman that year, so it's not like I'm saying he was a bad player by any means. I thought he was great, but in terms of a pro quarter, I thought Andrew Luck. You know, going into that last year, it seemed like it was he. I mean, he, they thought he'd be the number one pick in August, and he was the number one pick. How often does that happen anymore? Um, so it's not like people jumped off his bandwagon. But I don't think it was necessarily – people still found stuff to debate there. Who was it, Phil Sims that said he had a weak arm? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, Joe Montana didn't have as big an arm as him and obviously turned out great. There's been plenty of quarterbacks who had average arms who thrived in the NFL. So One day, one day we'll, we'll, it'll be the unicorn. It'll be the quarterback that 100%. Well, you know what? It won't happen because even if that were true – You've still got to have something to debate on these sports debate shows. So somebody would find something wrong with them and prop up somebody else just for the show. I think you're right. There'll be, there has to be something. 
there has to be something. I mean, I look, I, I was, you know, wowed by my, you know, hearing all this stuff and being around Saquon Barkley, but ultimately, you know, let's say he has a big, big, uh, junior year and he leaves. There are going to be people who go, do you, are you really going to spend the top five pick on a running back? There's less value on the running back. So if it's not the player, it becomes the position or the fit they have, or, you know, they've had too many carries. I mean, th- there'll be something for people to always find fault with. That, that, by the way, has been an interesting trend, how just only a few years ago it was, well, you know, and if running backs are never going to go high anymore because they're expendable and they have a short shelf life. And now, like, within three years, we've gone to Ezekiel Elliott. You know, he showed you it's showed it's worth it. So all these running backs are going to go high this year, and Barkley's going to go even higher next year. We'll see. How about we get to the mailbag? Okay. Hit it, Rob Stone. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And this is a fun one right off the bat. And Bruce, I was in Vegas a few weeks ago for March Madness. And while I was there, I laid down a few college football futures bets. I found some of the odds surprising, like Penn State at 25-1 to to win the national championship. The Big Ten champs with a lot of returning starters at 25 to 1 when Oklahoma is 12 to 1 seems wrong to me. And then he has included a PDF of the sheet. So, do you, I mean, give me your thoughts on Penn State. You were just there, whether that 25 to 1 seems like a good bet to you. And then I'm going to read to you uh, some of the other ones. I don't think that that's, I don't think they should be much higher than that because I think they have as good a firepower on offense as as anybody will in the country and a great system with Joe Moorhead's offense. But personnel wise in that front seven, they don't have the caliber athletes that that Ohio State has. I would say really roster wise, they're probably about two years away from, you know, I see them being on that level if, if they keep trending up. But I, they don't have that. And so here's my issue and why I think they are 25 to one. I'm going to read you this. And I remember thinking this a few days ago. Uh, so when the calendar starts getting, when the leaves change and we get into deep into October, they host Michigan, then they go to Columbus and then they play at Michigan state. Uh, that's not going to be an easy stretch. You know, that back to back where, you know, yeah, they could afford to lose one of those. Um, but that's, that's a heavy group that they have, by the way. And before that they have to play at Northwestern. I think they have a bye week in there. They also have to go to Iowa. So so you're okay. The, you're okay with twenty-five to one. I mean, I am because they're in the toughest division in college football, and they're in a much tougher conference than Oklahoma's in. So I'm going to start reading some of these to you, and you can just tell me, stop me if I get to buy or sell. Yeah. Oh, you want to do buy or sell? We do buy or sell. Okay, Alabama three to one. That's where where it should be. Yeah. Ohio State fifteen to two. Yeah, I like that. I would buy that. USC six to one. I'm not as bullish on them as Coward is, but uh, I would say probably if you told me they were eight to one, I'd say okay. Yeah, that's I, I exactly what I was gonna say. Uh, I don't think they're as good on defense as as they probably need to be to be up there. I think based on our conversation the other day, you're gonna want to sell this one. Florida State is the same as Ohio State, fifteen to two. No, I like DeAndre Francois. I I think Cam Akers is a real deal. I'm on that. I think they'll be the ACC champs. Okay. Sell for me. Oklahoma 12 to 1. Yeah, I'm not loving Mike Stoops' defense, but the offensive line now has a lot of experience, and I think Baker Mayfield's terrific. So 
you know, I, you, if they were nine to one, I would see it. So, if you're a Oklahoma believer that they could win the national championship, you're basically saying you're putting all your eggs on Baker Mayfield, right? Because you no yeah. longer have Mixon and P. Ryan. Um, D.D. Westbrook was a really good receiver, yeah. you know, productive show. Gone. They do have some some experienced guys on defense, but it's not. I don't think it's going to be a dominant defense. So, you know, I mean, we're as of our last conversation, we were about the Big 12, we weren't sure whether we were even uh, just sure that they were going to be our Big 12 favorites, whether it's going to be them, Oklahoma State, or West Virginia. Clemson, the defending national champs, 20-1. to 1. Mm, This may you surprise you, but LSU has better odds at 18-1. to 1. Yeah, I don't know if I would, I would, I don't know if I would have LSU with better odds. I would say you could reverse them because they're pretty, you know, to me, I, you know, the one thing is they, you know, Deshaun Watson, I don't say it was everything because they had a lot of really good talent around him, but I think that's a step back. So I would say Clemson 15 to one, LSU 20 to one. How's that? Michigan, which opened at 15 to one is now 12 to one, despite rep- having to replace 18 starters. Because I think people looked and so yeah, they have that many guys to replace. But the guys on the D-line, their D-line still may be one of the best D-lines in the country. And some of this is also just their big name and, and Michigan fans have a huge— Sure. You know, they're gonna By the way, them. I want to I go back to what I just said when I said I, LSU should be, I, you know, instead of 20 to 1, maybe 25 to 1, just where, where Penn State is. Um, I, I think Penn State should be higher than LSU. Yeah, and maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, I, I just think Penn State is in a tougher division than LSU is right now. How about this one? Lamar Jackson and the Louisville Cardinals checking in at 20 to 1. Mm. I don't think they can win the national championship. I don't think they can either. Do you see Lamar Jackson fin- making it to New York this year for the Heisman? That is a great question. And, and, and while it is always hard for the, for the winner to repeat, I feel like this is the hardest one yet. Because of the way he finished last season, and a lot of people think he shouldn't have won it anyway. Sam Darnold already has better odds to start the season. Um, I'll go ahead and say that, provided he stays healthy, I do think he'll make it there. Because when he's when he's playing well, he's still you know he's he's dazzling. His highlights are amazing, and I, I don't think he's going to go from people thinking he was the best player in the country to not one of the three or four best if he is healthy the whole season. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm curious to see what happens there. Just you know, this would be a good, a good, uh, a good example of what Bobby Petrino can do and how much better they can, you know, he can get. All right, I'm buying both of these next two: Washington twenty-five to one and Oklahoma State forty to one. Yeah, I'm surprised Washington is so low there. Yeah, why is Washington a playoff team from last year twenty-five to one and and? The same as Penn they, State and Michigan is twelve to one. I, the only thing I can think of is because they lost, you know, three really good guys in the secondary, and you know, I mean, they still have, you know, yeah, they lost John Ross, but they still have some firepower. They have a really good running back. You know, uh, Austin Pettis is a really good receiver. So, just a couple more here. Uh, Florida is fifty to one. If, if you think Jim McElwain is on the poison on the break, bring a huge breakthrough, then. I think I said Austin Pettis. Dante Pettis. Dante Pettis, Pettis yeah. <laughs> That's right. a little bit of a prank. It's all right. Um, all right, and here's one where, again, I said, you know, brand name matters here. Texas, 25 to 1. Same as Penn State, same as Washington. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm not seeing that. I could. I think that if you told me fifty to one, where's Notre Dame? If well, Texas that's the weird thing. Texas opened at fifty to one and is now twenty five to one. A lot of Tom Herman believers in putting their money down in Vegas. Notre Dame opened at seventy five to one and is now fifty to one. Yeah. Um, uh, Stanford. Is, Stanford is a hundred to one. You know, I listened to our podcast the other day, and you were pretty much raving about Stanford, and I'm still not sure exactly why, other than we we both think David Shaw is a terrific coach. Well, I think they're going to be—you're talking about the one where I was at the scrimmage? Yeah, you came away really gushing about their defense. Their defense is really good. Uh, there's no question about that, but they have a lot of—it's you know, when we talked about with Andy, is everything going to come together in offense where Keller Chris comes back, and he's 100% by August— and they find some new playmaking receivers, and the offensive line could protect Chris. I mean, there's a lot of questions there. Okay. I mean, I'm not as, like, I feel like you're saying Stanford is going to be, no, you're not calling them, like, the 85 Bears, but, you know, they weren't, they didn't have a top 30 defense last year with Solomon Thomas. But most, but they're much more experienced this year. They'll win 10 games. They'll win 10 games. Okay. I mean, okay. whether that's going to be enough to win the division, I don't know, but they'll win 10 games. Okay. Uh, this question is from Rob Daniels. Gentlemen, with the December signing period, if implemented, yes, results in fewer fewer coach firings, A, and B, have no impact on the numbers of firings, but change the dismissal timing. In other words, will coaches be fired in October and November in greater numbers than in the past? Curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I think the coaches that would have been fired before are still going to get fired, but I do think there's now going to be a tremendous amount of pressure to fire your coach and have the new coach in place by the time that December signing day comes. So does that mean more coaches get fired in the middle of the season? Does it mean that more people are going to kind of go the various backdoor channels you need to go to have conversations with the coaches that you're interested in while they're still in their seasons? I don't know. But, you know, I, I do think that becomes a big factor. I don't think it's going to be a case of people are going to be making those decisions because of that. Also, I'm a little skeptical of how many schools would try to get that hire done, rush it through, just because the reality is if you fire a coach and then you try to hire somebody else, chances are the kids who might be interested in that school then, they're not going to rush into the decision because they probably don't know that much about that coach you're hiring. What will be interesting to see is if they treat it like... Let me give you an example. Yeah. So earlier this week, or as we're taping today, Boston College announced its new AD, Martin Jarmont, uh, Gene Smith guy, came from Ohio State. It's not a stretch to think that they may fire Steve Adazio at BC. So let's say they did that. And then he decides, you know what, I'm going to hire, you know, Ohio State's having a good year. I'm going to hire Ryan Day, who had worked at BC. He's a Northeast guy, Chip Kelly disciple, and he's a quarterback coach at, uh, at Ohio State. Do we really think, you know, let's say that happens, you know, they 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 fire Adazio, get rid of him on on Thanksgiving, and then make this move within ten days? Do we really think some some kid is going to be turn around and go, okay, you know, we got to hire this guy right away just because we're going to force this hire through? To me, it doesn't sound like that doesn't seem that practical. I think in general, there's going to be tremendous pressure on kids to sign at the early signing period. I don't think it's going to be like. If you're sure, sign. If not, wait till February. I think it's going to be sign now or we might give your spot away unless you're, you know, five-star Rashawn Gary type. So 
in the case of a school like that, you know, I think what would happen is they would they would hire the guy and he would immediately get on a plane and try to visit as many of their committed recruits as possible in a short amount of time. In justifying this and, and in terms of the issue of coaches getting fired, um, I know that the people that supported this, like like Bob Bowlesby said that, you know, they did the study and they found that a overwhelmingly high percentage of guys who were committed before a coach got fired still ended up signing with that school and so if that's going to be the case going forward then i guess you could do this one of two ways one would be you know and this is i'm saying if the coaching change happens really close to the signing day too too close to do what you're talking about remember how much crap jim grobe took when he got to uh baylor and he wouldn't let the kids out of the letter of intent i do remember that yes we'll have to see how this plays out it's fascinating i don't know how it's going to play out you know, I, I I have my own hunch that it's going to be it's going to replace February as signing day, but we shall see. This is from Don Hartman in Landon, Pennsylvania. Bruce, on the episode, he's talking about the episode where you recapped your visit to State College. You didn't say anything about Penn State's offensive line. What was your impression of them? It seems to me that the offensive line could actually be a strength this season after a few seasons of being the weakest link on the offense. You know what? It, I want to say it was better than I expected it to be. Not to the level when you see the receivers, that was the thing that obviously I've been kind of gushing over, but it was better. I know that they have a couple of young linemen they really liked. I want to say Connor McGregor, but it's Connor McGovern who had uh, come in there, played well. There's a younger, uh, an early enrollee freshman that that uh, James Franklin talked to me about that he was pretty excited about, Mike Morandi. He said he's you know not that big, but just a really, really good football player. And so I think what you've seen now with the scholarship numbers getting up, they have really upgraded in terms of the not just the depth, but the kind of guys they have in there. And again, I, I don't think this is going to be, uh, you know, because they had so many issues protecting protecting Hackenberg a couple of years ago because they had no depth. I think you know Lime Grover, he comes in from uh, from Minnesota, had a pretty strong reputation there, but he works very well with Joe Moorhead. They, I think, they both even went to like the same elementary school. So I think when you have that guys on the same page, I think it gives them a, uh, a really good base to build off of. So I think it's pretty good. I mean, it, you know, a long way. And they have, um, like I said, they have a lot of talent to work with. When you go on these visits, do you feel like you understand offensive line play enough to actually evaluate offensive lines? Uh, in the case of that, I'm not watching their offensive line too much. I'm basically eyeballing them. And in the case of that, it was like pre-practice stuff just to see physically who looks like, you know, like a Big Ten offensive line should look. Yeah, because I feel uh, like I have no um, – there was a school I went to last year and the the they wanted me to do a radio interview afterward. And they were basically like one by one, like how the quarterbacks look, how the running backs look. And they got the offensive line and I said, I have no idea. Um, I guess if you're watching like a live situation – and the quarterback is com- is constantly under pressure, that might be a bad sign for the offensive line, but it also might just mean they have a really good pass rush. Or it could mean that, you know, especially when you're looking at it, so a lot of times teams don't have good second-team lines, but um, I think what's telling here is that group at the end of the year, but now going forward, they're still really young. I mean, I think there's a chance they could start, you know, like a bunch of, of second-year guys. And so, you know, you're in the deep end of the pool there. And I think that's going to be that's still going to be a challenge. But, you know, going forward, because they are so, so good at what they do scheme wise, I think. And it, it gets teams on their heels. 
defensively. And I think that helps the offensive line too. And, and, you know, so I think that's why they're very excited about what they got there. Let me ask you this next one as well from John Rohrbach. Washington State loses Gabe Marks and River Craycraft next year, each of whom performed bigly last season and counted for many, many beautiful yards. We always hear about system quarterbacks and occasionally about system receivers in the air raid type offenses. Uh, but his question is, how are offenses like Mike Leach able to plug and play with new wide receivers and do you think Washington State will be able to keep pace with last year's offense in 2017? Before you answer that, I promised our friend Lindsey Schnell real quick that we would plug, you know, we had Andy on last week and he talked about, our last episode he talked about their regular podcast, Campus Rush. But right now, Lindsey is doing this special one for the NFL draft, draft, uh, draft season. And Gabe Marks is the featured subject of the current one. Gabe Marks, very interesting dude. Uh, you know, he's an L.A. kid. Obviously, had a great run there. Uh, was such a clutch receiver for them. I mean, physically, he's not. He's very average, you know, in terms of by NFL standards. But he was such a go-to guy for that offense. You know, the most talented receiver Leach has had, maybe since he's been there, is Tavares Martin. He's a Florida kid. He's got you know decent length. He can really run. He needs to take a big step forward. I mean, he he could be the home run hitter they really haven't had. Uh, the other one who's a redshirt freshman who's a big physical uh, guy who runs pretty well is Des Patman. He's from San Diego. I think you'll see him be a be a you know be more of a weapon. As far as the um, and I, I know they have a JC guy and I'm blanking on his name. He's another I want to say City College San Francisco kid who is they really like and has been very impressive is very uh and is probably a probably most similar to marks in terms of good hands uh probably a little quicker than gabe marks we'll see if he has the same kind of toughness and competitiveness but so i think those guys are are guys you'll see step forward in terms of the the offense i think it should be even without marks it should be every bit as good you have luke falk is there they have four running backs who are really good. They're all back. And I think the offensive line should be very, very good. I mean, you look at Andre Dillard. He's an all-Pac-12 kind of guy. Cody O'Connell also back. I mean, they have a bunch of experience. And I think, you know, what what gets back to John's question a little bit, how are they able to plug and play? So much of that system, more than probably any other system uh, – in college football, or at least as much as any other system, it is timing based and they rep it so much. And a lot of these guys, you know, it's very rare when somebody just jumps into it. And this JC kid's a mid-year. He's one of those who's that way. But, you know, it takes takes a while before they get it down. And that's why I think you saw Leach's team struggle so much when he got there at first. I mean, yeah, they were really bad on the offensive line, but I think it was just not, you know, not having a feel for it. And then eventually after a couple of years, they finally got the rhythm down. Uh, you want to move on to James Cunningham in, in Raleigh, North Carolina? Yeah. Okay. On the last podcast, Bruce made a comment in responding to another listener's email I found curious. Since I haven't read this yet, I'm a little curious myself. Bruce's comment, I'm paraphrasing here, was if colleges can't keep up with spending on coaches and facilities, they shouldn't be in the game. Now I'm wondering what was meant by that do you think there'll be an inevitable split in the ncaa between the power five and the rest we'll see another another division one and one double a if the money being spent doesn't that mean 
that half of college football will go away with all these rules. So that's not, I mean, you tell me, but that's not what I took your comment to mean. I think you were just saying, and, and I think a lot of people in the NCAA agree now, or certainly stop trying to create equality. The equality doesn't exist in the first place. If you can spend the money on a 10th assistant or a $10,000 locker, good for you. If you don't, then, you know, you'll still be able to play football. Life goes on. Is that what you meant? Yeah. And I, I do think, you know, towards uh, towards James's question, what I see happening and I would bet you'd agree is the gap between the haves and the have nots will only continue to grow. Um, I do love the idea that, you know, the Sun Belt and, and the Mac are part of, quote, major college football. You know, I feel like I hear the term mid-major as more of a college basketball term than college football, even though, you know, obviously in the tournament, you have a better chance, I feel like, of having these big branded upsets. Uh, but I think going forward t- towards James's question, do you see maybe 10 years from now uh, that we will get this kind of breaking apart of the power fives from everybody else? I do, and I don't know what form that will take. But, I mean, they're already... Nick Saban ta- like, kind of hints around that. I yeah, feel like I, I think they're already kind of not playing the same sport, you know, like you've got on the high end, you've got Alabama, 100,000 people in the st- stadium every week. You know, the SEC is giving them 30, 40 million dollars a year in, in distribution. And then on the low end of that, you've got like, you know, 4,000 people in a stadium at a MAC game. And they're fortunate to get a $200,000 check for the TV. I mean, how long can that continue? I don't know. Um but, of course, I've also theorized it could be more drastic than that, that that eventually the Ohio States and Michigans will say, why are we, you know, why are we letting Purdue dictate how much TV value we get? So that's far off down the future. In the meantime, I did a story last week about NIU. Um, they have this ridiculous schedule in 28. They just added a road game at Florida State in 2018 to go with already playing at Iowa, at BYU, and Utah at home. I mean, it's just the most ambitious non-conference schedule I've ever seen. Unfortunately for them, that's partly out of necessity. They canceled a home game against Idaho to go play this road game at Florida State because it's a $1.6 million guarantee, and they need it because the state, the almost state of Illinois budget has been frozen for two years, so they're desperate. And, he, and the AD flat out said, you know, this, thank God for Florida State, this paycheck is basically going to save a lot of people's jobs. Like if they hadn't gotten this infusion of money, they would have had to lay off a bunch of athletic department staff. And and, and I use a good program. I mean, they played in the Orange Bowl a few years ago. So like something's got to give, right? How are they going to continue to operate in the quote unquote same level as the schools that bring in 40 million a year in TV revenue? These are these are issues that you're never going to resolve. I mean, it's like this is kind of a society we live in that's that's not built for this, right? It's not it's not built. Well, you're going things. deep on me now. No, but I'm just saying, like, why do we look at NCAA athletics through a different prism that we look at everything else in our lives? You mean in terms of like they're just naturally being rich people and poor people? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's probably making it more blunt than I would mean it. But but there, along those same lines, I always come back to this, whereas the Stanford education carries a lot more weight in the world than the some other school in a, you know, in a different part of the country. And that same NIUAD, Sean Frazier is the one who you may remember a couple months ago, I believe it was a, uh, Dennis Dodd's story at CBS, who is pushing for 
the idea of a of the group of five forming their own playoff. And it has so far been met with like not a lot of interest from the other conferences, but I talked to him about that as well, and he wanted to emphasize that that was not about like we want to take our ball and, and go home and play for something else. It was literally like we need the money, and we think that something like this might fetch more money than we're getting right now. I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks they should do something like that, that they should just kind of admit we're not going to get to go to the playoff. We're not really we're never going to fetch the eyeballs that, that these big name schools are going to. So why don't we form our own product? And maybe that happens before like the split would, you know, everybody assumes the split would come because the power five schools would split off, but they don't really have any need to. And the system works fine for them the way it is. It's the smaller schools that might need to find another way. And so far it doesn't seem to involve dropping down to FCS. We, you know, that's going to happen with Idaho here next year. But other than that, I mean, they're the first school ever to do that, to drop down from what used to be 1A to 1AA and now is FBS to FCS. Otherwise, it's going the opposite direction. More FCS schools keep wanting to join FBS, even though you see what a financial strain that can be. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a calculated investment by a lot of places. This last one, I like when the readers bring something to my attention that I wasn't aware of. And maybe you were, but I certainly was not. This is from Adam in Washington, D.C., who is a Central Michigan fan, apparently. Stuart and Bruce, listening to... Oh, and by the way, if he's a Central Michigan fan, we know how he feels about the Gundy thing. Get over it, you lost. Listening to the last (laughs) episode... It does. His signature says, P.S. Mike Gundy, get over it, you lost. Listening to the last episode, oddly enough, on a United flight, and your conversation about former players and coaches got me thinking, why would someone with the NFL experience of Shane Graham go be a quality control coach at a place like Central Michigan while I'm a former Chippewa... It seems perplexing someone of his stature wouldn't be at his alma mater or at least a Power 5 school. Bruce, did you realize that Shane Graham is now the special teams quality control coach at Central Michigan? I didn't, but my guess is, and I know John Bonamigo, the head coach there reasonably well, is a longtime NFL special teams guy. And I have just Wikipedia Shane Graham's career, and I've never seen this, so, uh, like... I'm going to read to you, and this is Wikipedia, so maybe it's not all accurate, but uh, career history. In 2000, he was with the Richmond Speed, the New Orleans Saints. In 2001, he was with the Seahawks, the Bills. 2002, Seahawks again, Panthers, Bengals, Ravens, Giants, Patriots, Redskins, Cowboys, Dolphins, Ravens, Texans, Browns, Steelers. 2013 to 2015, back with the Saints, and in 2015, also with the Falcons. I did not realize that. I associate him with the Bengals. And as I look at it now, that may be the only team he spent. He spent uh, seven seasons with the Bengals, and that appears to be the only time he was with anybody for more than a year, up until the Saints toward the end. That's amazing. He played for almost the entire NFL. So what you're saying is he must have crossed paths with John yeah. Bonamigo. And Bonamigo has been at a lot of places, too. And I got to know him a little bit first when he was with the Dolphins. Um, Keep talking and I'll cross-reference it. Well, it's not going to be that easy because here's Bonamico's list once he got into NFL because <laughs> he'd been he'd been a college's guy uh, in the 90s in the in the Northeast. Jacksonville Jaguars, Green Bay Packers, New Orleans Saints, yeah, Miami I'm waiting Dolphins, for it to match up. New Orleans Saints, Jacksonville Jaguars, Detroit Lions. It would have been so much easier if it was the Bengals. Um, 
Even the Dolphins, they just barely missed over. I think it's the Saints. It has to be the Saints. Wait, wait. He was with Saints 2013 to 2015. That wouldn't work then, would it? There's no point here where they overlapped, but surely they must know each other, and that's how this came to be. Look, you got to start somewhere. If Shane Graham wants to get into college coaching, you got to start somewhere. Rather than do all this, I think it'd be easier if I just text him. How do you know Shane Graham? How did you know Shane Graham? Do it right now. Um, yeah, I mean, you got to start somewhere. And apparently, you know, the Power Five schools were filled, or I don't know if he tried that way or not. Honestly, the most surprising thing to me of all of this is that a school like Central Michigan, after we just got done talking about the the difference in resources, has a special teams quality control assistant on its staff. Well, it's a good, I mean, it's a good thing because, well, first of all, when you have a head coach who, uh, you know, that's his background, you're going to think he's going to put an added emphasis before, you know, on it. So I think that's probably part of it. That's I mean, a good point. How many schools, even at the Power 5 level, have one of those off-field positions devoted to special teams? Uh, you know, I think more than you'd think. I, I want to say LSU had a couple of guys doing that. Um, did you ever coach Shane Graham before? No. So let me see what else. You're getting to see Bruce Feldman in action here. I mean, you got that text back immediately. Yeah. Um... Just say, we are answering a question about this <laughs> on the Audible, and we are perplexed why he is working with you. <laughs> Worked him out when he was coming out of Virginia Tech, stayed in touch with him. Holy cow, that was a long time ago. Yeah. He, can't, he, was, he was on the team that went to the national title game, right? NFL fraternity is small. Yeah, he um, went undrafted out of Virginia Tech in 2000. So yes, his last year in 99, that was the year they went to the national title game. So he worked him out going into the 2000 draft when John Bonamigo was with the Saints. and No, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong page. When he was with the Jaguars, and they stayed in touch ever since. Wow. I can see that. I, can, I can't see you right now. But I think the wheels are spinning and that this is going to be a story here in the next couple of days. No, 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 no. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. But So, look, we try to give you inside knowledge here on the Audible, and I just I don't think you could get any more inside than that. And I'm sure that, um, that, that Adam in Washington, D.C., Adam Lewis in Washington, D.C., is never guessed when he sent you that podcast that he would get or that question that he would get a real-time answer. Who is your favorite Central Michigan player of all time? Stu, I bet you, I, I bet you, I know who it's going to be. Central Michigan player of all time. It was the. It's. I mean, it's everybody's Dan Lefevre. Yeah, that's who I thought you were going to. Is were there? Gonna you're going to give me a less obvious one. Well, you know what's what's kind of interesting about them is. So he, do you think did Lefevre ever finish in the top ten for the Heisman? He did. I. I, I mean, I have to check that, but I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. Um, with all that, it's it's funny because arguably the best receiver in the NFL is a Central Michigan guy, and neither one of us probably knew much of anything about him when he was there. Was that Antonio Brown? Yeah. Now was he there with Lefevre? I think so, because he was he was like he's been in the NFL for about seven or eight years. Well, Lefevre was uh, like the mid two thousand six to two thousand nine. That would have been his receiver for a bunch of it, yeah. Okay, I don't. The, I guess we were so consumed with Lefevre, we didn't pay attention to who he was throwing it to. I don't see any mention of him having finished in the Heisman top ten. I know there were, you know, there was definitely at least one year where there was like a bit of a grassroots campaign for him. And who was his coach? 
Uh, Butch Jones and Brian Kelly. I believe just Butch Jones. Yeah, yeah, that would have been Butch Jones. So uh, Brian Kelly would have been at the uh, would have been at Cincinnati, Cincinnati by then. Yeah, yeah, because Lefevre's last year was 09, and that was the big um, Marty Gilliard, Cincinnati, Tony Pike undefeated right. team. Yeah, plays Florida or whatever. Um, see, this stuff is like kind of comfort food. You, we like our like Mac. You know, kind of stuff that you. I feel like you 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 kind of fall in love with these programs a little bit when you don't see them on Saturdays because you have all the other stuff going on. Well, I always have a soft spot for the Mac because of the part of the country that I'm from, and also, I mean, I remember when, you know, make fun of it now if you want, but I mean, when when uh, Randy Moss was at Marshall and Travis Prentice was at Miami, or even you know, go a little bit forward from that to Leftwich at Marshall, like Gradkowski at Toledo, uh, Roethlisberger at Miami, those were some good teams, you know? Like, they weren't, you were seeing the, you were you were watching Mac games then. I mean, look, a lot of these guys end up showing up in the NFL, but I think it's just, it's entertaining football. Yeah, and you're going to be seeing a lot of it on weeknights this year because they're not playing a single Saturday game in November. And I'm okay with that. Before we came on, you said you and I were going to try to keep this short. We are well over an hour at this point. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Again, theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And if you love the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review, a five-star review. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time.